Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church. Seems that we're all getting used to these kinds of meetings lately. I think I might even be getting used to speaking into a camera uh, and preaching to a, a completely empty room. So as we have mentioned a few times in our posts on the realm, we have kind of adjusted our Psalms schedule to reflect uh, some of the challenges that we're going uh, that we're dealing with with uh, this COVID-19 outbreak. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at psalms that strongly uh, teach and show how God is our refuge in times of trouble, and that if we uh, aggressively pursue and seek Him as our refuge, we will experience uh, a greater level of, of peace and, and prosperity and, and strength. And so this morning, we are looking at Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, uh, we're going to see that uh, we can have hope in these, in these kinds of troubled times um, because we have a, a ruler, Jesus Christ, uh, who is in charge and who is uh, dealing with uh, the affairs of men in order to bring all things under his rule. So let me read through Psalm 72. I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into the passage. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of all the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. 
May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let me pray. Lord God, as you are completely aware of, we are living in the midst of a, a very challenging time. And as we see here, Lord, in this psalm, uh, we, we have the vision given to us of a ruler, of a global ruler, who brings prosperity and strength and abundance for all peoples throughout all nations. God, we are a long way from that. God, we, we pray that as uh, we work through this passage this morning, we pray, God, that you would strengthen us with the hope and the vision that this psalmist had so that we can indeed look forward to, uh, to your blessings upon our world now in the midst of this hardship and God, that we may look forward to a time when this righteous ruler uh, indeed rules the nations and brings prosperity and peace to all. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the subject of political leadership has been at the center of the COVID-19 outbreak since the news of it started to leak out of China. Some political leaders we know have responded well, utilizing as much of their power and authority as possible uh, to protect their citizens. Sadly, however, it seems that arrogant and inept political leadership in countries around the world has contributed to what has been a much faster and far-reaching spread of the virus than it had to be. Initial efforts by political leaders to hide the existence and downplay the significance and the danger of the virus in China delayed and weakened the global response, wasted valuable time and set a tone that undermined other countries' efforts to respond well to what has become a global crisis with no clear end in sight. And in our own country, our leaders initially downplayed the threat of the virus, ignorant that the virus had already been in this country for several weeks. And even as the virus's effects unfolded around the world, uh, we continued to exalt our American exceptionalism naively believing that we would be spared the fates that other countries and even our own country are now seeing. In reality, the arrogance and the fear and the naivete, as well as the foolishness on the part of, of leaders around the world, have significantly contributed to the growing number of deaths and the global economic meltdown. This failure is even more stark when you realize 
that experts around the world have been warning global leaders of the real possibility of a global coronavirus pandemic for years. The failure of our leaders, however, even in these kinds of situations, really should not be that surprising. It's been the case throughout all time in history that leaders have failed their nations. Even as we look into the scriptures for the nation of Israel, it was the norm rather than the exception that kings failed the nation for arrogant and selfish purposes. A simple reading through the books of First and Second Kings reveals that one after another, the kings of Israel worshipped idols, overtaxed their people, waged unnecessary wars, committed adultery and incest, murdered innocent people, stole property, killed God's prophets, and brought disasters to the land and its people. Sounds somewhat similar, doesn't it? We should not be surprised that the leaders of our nations during our time would conduct themselves in much the same way. And yet, even considering the historical and the present realities, Jesus calls us to conduct ourselves in the following way in regard to our political leaders. He instructs us to honor and respect and submit to our government authorities. Now, to honor and respect means to, to hold up and to think in high regard of. I think that is probably the most difficult thing for us to do. But this is what Jesus calls us to. To hold up and to think highly of our political leaders. We're instructed to pay taxes so that the government can provide essential services. When we see our governments wasting money, it's hard for us to, to pay our taxes as we're called to. But yet we're called to do this. And we're also called to, to pray for our government authorities so that the nations can experience peace. I think that we all have to admit that doing these things with the spirit of honor and respect, especially in times like this, is quite difficult. And I think it's especially hard when we already have documentation, the, the news coming out of the missteps across the world throughout the last few months is, is amazing. It's especially hard to respect and hold up our government and political leaders when we have so much documentation of cover-ups, missteps, uninformed decisions, and flat-out lies that give us the ability to ascribe blame. And yet we still have these instructions from Jesus to do these things. And I think Psalm 72 goes a long way to help us be faithful to Christ in regard to what he's called us to in our conduct and our attitudes toward, toward political leadership. 
Psalm 72 is a psalm that paints a vision for a world under a righteous ruler. And it seems that the vision would be one that all of the world too would easily agree with. And it's a vision strengthened by a true hope that, that gave this psalmist, and it seems like that the psalmist is wanting to give us a, a hope that can give us the ability and strength to patiently and honorably endure these times and respect and honor our governments, even as they, they fail us. So in this vision, we'll be looking at the, the qualities of a righteous ruler that the psalmist is, is painting a vision of. We're going to look at the, the effects that this righteous ruler has on the nation as he rules. And we're also going to see um, how the psalmist uh, models and instructs how we are to be praying for for our rulers. First, the psalmist highlights several qualities that make up the righteous ruler. The first quality is that of fair judgment. Now, it's not just the judgment that we think of in, in like a trial where you have two conflicting parties that are trying to settle matters. The judgment that he is talking about here is, is the ability to think wisely and to make wise choices among many. Someone with fair judgment evaluates decisions without concern for how the decisions will personally affect them. They look at the merits of the options involved, weighing them against each other, and conclude with the best choice among all of their various options. Someone with fair judgment also is somebody that brings advisors, wise advisors, into, into their counsel. The second quality is that of goodness, or what the text calls righteousness. It means that the, the ruler or the, the person with this quality is governed by what is good for the community. There's a, a standard of goodness or a standard of righteousness or a standard of behavior that has been established by the community. And obviously, for the nation of Israel, uh, that has been um, communicated uh, by God through his law. But on a broader sense, the, the community has a set, uh, a set of standards and expectations that people need to comply with in order to do good and to be loyal to the community. And that's what it means here. So things like dishonesty and inconsistency and selfish motivations, these things are not detected in the good and righteous person. The third quality is that of a concern for those who are vulnerable. So the psalmist specifically states that the righteous ruler is one who defends the cause of the poor and gives deliverance to the children of the needy. The poor are not an afterthought to the righteous ruler. It's not something that they take care of uh, at the end. It is a priority. They see that their, that their leadership has as a core responsibility the care of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. The text says that the, that the poor are often without a helper. So the righteous ruler sees himself as the person that's going to stand in and be the help to those who are vulnerable. The text says that the, the righteous ruler shows pity. 
the righteous ruler shows compassion. That's a, that's a word that I think that sounds maybe a little more acceptable to us. None of us want to be pitied, but all of us desire people to show compassion to us. And that's what the righteous ruler does to the poor and to the needy and the oppressed. Now, the, the, the psalmist says that the righteous ruler doesn't show pity, doesn't show compassion to the poor out of a, out of a political motivation, as I think is a lot of times the case uh, in our own world. It says the righteous ruler is motivated out of a sincere value that he places upon the lives of all people. It says that he sees that the blood of the poor and that the blood of the needy is precious to him. The righteous ruler does not place value upon people because of their net worth or their ability to influence others, but on the fact that they are people that God has created in his image and that they are people that God cares about. The word precious here has a, has a sense of, of rare treasure that's being protected and cared for. Whereas unrighteous rulers vary the worth they place on humans based upon how they are able to benefit them, the righteous ruler sees all human life as precious. Now the fourth quality develops out of this, this, this uh, quality for valuing and taking care of the poor and the needy. As one in authority, the righteous ruler uses his power uh, and the text says to literally crush those who oppress the vulnerable. The psalm addresses exploitation, oppression, and violence. Exploitation is a, is a form of oppression where people are mistreated and held down because they're in a vulnerable position and have no way to leave that position. Oppression is the use of force to hold down others who are weak and can't stand up for themselves. Violence is the tool of the oppressor. It is the threat of physical harm or even death in order to control those that they oppress. The righteous ruler actively works to, again, literally crush and punish these types of people. So those are the qualities that this psalm raises about the righteous ruler. So the psalmist, as we've mentioned, also goes into the effects that a righteous ruler has on the nation and its people. And the first image that the psalm portrays is that of the righteous ruler being like the rain on mown grass. Now, the image portrayed here is most likely the scene viewed by a farmer right after a wheat harvest, the wheat being what has been mowed. The field has produced its bounty over the seasons. The sun has dried the wheat, and the farmer has cut it down in order to send it off to the market. And then along comes the rain, once again, to nourish the land, to produce more harvest, to feed more people. And this cycle goes on. And so the, the imagery here of the righteous ruler being like rain on mown grass 
is this is the is is intended to uh, communicate and to really uh, provide a a vision that uh, that calls our senses. We we've all smelled uh, mown grass. We've smelled uh, the earth after a rain, and there's this this sense of vitality and nourishment uh, that is happening, and the promise of life, and that is the vision that the psalmist is wanting to communicate. That the righteous ruler is like rain on mown grass. And in this environment of life and growth, it says that the righteous flourish. So the righteous ruler is taking care of the poor and the vulnerable. He is creating the conditions for life. And in these conditions, people prosper and they multiply, including the poor and the needy. The psalmist envisions that material prosperity will be abundant and widespread for all people, not just for a few. The abundance, it says this several times, is for the people. And it's also interesting here that the psalmist addresses and explains that that flourishing and prosperity is going to happen in the cities as well as in the rural areas. It's quite possible, the text seems to indicate, that ancient civilizations experienced the, the similar tension between the urban and the rural areas as we do. But rather than existing in a state of division, the psalmist is giving us a vision of a, of a united nation. There isn't, a, there isn't these, these, these differing cultures of urban and rural people uh, are not divided. We have our two Americas, and some have even, over the last uh, few political cycles, have talked about two Minnesotas, the differences between these urb, urban and, and rural people. The righteous ruler creates unity in these cultural differences. He has a unifying effect on all people, regardless of their economic class, regardless of where they're living, regardless of their cultural background. The righteous ruler unifies. So these are the effects. So we've looked at we've looked at the qualities of the righteous ruler and the effects that this righteous ruler has on the nation and its people. And the third thing that I want to look at is how the psalmist models and prays for, models prayer and prays for the righteous ruler. So in addition to praying for these kinds of qualities in the ruler and these kinds of effects on the nation and the people because of the ruler, the psalmist also prays a few things um, that would be necessarily unique to only one ruler. The first one is that, that this righteous ruler would enjoy global dominion, that all the nations of the world would bow down to this one ruler. He prays that all the enemies of the righteous ruler would be destroyed. Any nation that resists the rule of the righteous ruler, this one ruler, would be destroyed. If you think back to Psalm 2, one of the two introductory psalms to the entire book of Psalms, 
you see a, a warning there in Psalm 2 to the nations that they would, that they would uh, resist the tendency to fight against the anointed king of God and that they would instead kiss the son. And so the same idea is reflected here. Thirdly, the psalmist prays that all the nations of the world would, be, would, would bring their tributes, their gifts, their um, contributions at the feet of the righteous ruler. And then he concludes with a prayer that his name and his fame would endure forever throughout all of the nations. Literally, the prayer is that this righteous ruler would be a global celebrity. Not because of the drama surrounding his life, but because, specifically it says this, but because of his concern for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. He is famous because of his concern for the vulnerable. So we see that the prayers span the qualities desired for righteous rulers and the effects that the righteous rulers are to have on the nations. And we see some prayers that really could only apply to one ruler. He doesn't start out praying for just one ruler. He prays literally for all the descendants of David. Because God said that he would have a descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever. So we see prayers for many rulers and we see the prayers for one ruler. So I think that there are really two visions that the psalmist is, is pushing out here in this psalm. The first vision is a vision for all rulers at all times throughout all of the nations. This isn't just for that one ruler that ultimately will be the ruler Jesus Christ. The first vision is a vision for all of us to have about what it means to live in a nation governed by righteous rulers. It's not a bad longing to have. The text is pressing us toward that vision. The second vision, as we've already mentioned, the second vision is a vision for the eventual coming of the one righteous ruler that alone has the ability to fulfill these prayers. It is most likely that this psalm was written during the time in Israel's history where they were under great duress. It's, it necessarily needs to be post-Solomon. It, it makes references uh, to things that occurred during Solomon's reign in Israel. But after Solomon, there were only a few times throughout the hundreds of years prior to Christ's coming that Israel had any sort of, of righteous ruler. Most of the time, it was being governed by wicked rulers that brought disasters on the nation. So this psalm was written during a time when, when, it was, when the nation of Israel was under great stress, great tension, pain and suffering. But that did not stop the psalmist from longing for the experience of living in a nation governed by a righteous ruler and enjoying all the benefits of that righteous ruler's reign. And it didn't prevent him, the, 
the state of duress, the hardship that they were as a nation facing at the time, it, it, it didn't cause that psalmist um, to withdraw in hopelessness or despair. He kept a vision for what a world could be like, and he continued to put his hope in the promise of that eventual ruler that would come and bring this life uh, to reality, this vision to reality, for not just Israel, but for all the nations. So those are the two visions that this psalmist promotes. Now, obviously, we've all been reading a lot of the news. And just before preparing for this sermon, and, and actually uh, in times throughout preparing for this sermon, I've read a number of scathing articles detailing the compounding failures across governments in dealing with COVID-19. And I mentioned some of them earlier in the introduction. Had our governments been more responsive, the level of health and economic disruptions would not have been this severe. And if we can think back to what seems maybe even years ago, the beginning of this COVID-19 outbreak started on the heels of the, of the end of, a, of an impeachment process in this country that once again reflected the, the, the division and the bitterness in, in our government and in our nation. It's easy for us, regardless of where we fall politically, to grow as cynical and indifferent and hopeless and even angry as our culture is toward the government. And in this cynicism and hopelessness and, and anger, we fail to follow Jesus' instructions on how we are to regard and conduct ourselves in regard to our nation's leaders. We fail to honor them. We fail to pay taxes. We fail to hold them up and respect them. We fail to pray for them. In addition to this psalm, which sets the model for prayer for our leaders, we have this direct instruction from Jesus through the Apostle Paul in regard to how we are to pray for our nation's leaders. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and, excuse me, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's interesting, but it seems like, in some way, our prayers for our government leaders have something to do with our nations enjoying peace and people getting saved. But I think that we don't follow these instructions very well. I think it's easy for us to get just as bitter and 
cynical, and angry as the broader culture does. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think the psalm gives us a few hints. First of all, we see that the righteous ruler pities those who are in need and who need some help. The righteous ruler is going to show compassion. And I think that we, we fail to have a vision for righteous rulers, and we fail to, to pray zealously for our leaders because I don't think that we believe that we are actually going to be pitied, that we're actually going to be shown compassion. Do we really believe that someone is going to look at our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, and even the shameful things and care for us. I think we expect that if we reveal where we need help, we're going to be disdained and that people are going to run from us. I think that it's also very possible, likely the case, that not only do we not believe that someone is going to actually show compassion to us, I think that many of us don't want it. Some of us disdain our own selves, disdain our own weaknesses, disdain our, the fact that we have needs, disdain the fact that we need help, that we need to ask for help. We'd rather uh, try to rescue ourselves than admit that we're in a place of need. So why would we ask for help? Why would we acknowledge our weaknesses? That would bring us to a point of, of humiliation and shame that we maybe couldn't even endure. And to bring us to that place where we have to acknowledge that our governments could maybe meet those needs, uh, some of us would react strongly to that. Because we, we believe that that's not the government's role. Well, here we see clearly that the role of a good, righteous leader is to help those who are in need. Why would we ever pray for our nation's leaders to take care of the vulnerable and the poor and the oppressed uh, ourselves when we are in need of help if we don't believe that that's what governments should do? The second thing that I think causes us to not pray for our nation's leaders in the way that this psalmist models is that uh, we won't ultimately be saved. We, won't, we don't believe we're going to be shown compassion, and we don't actually believe that we're going to be rescued. We see that our circumstances are just too difficult to be overcome. Our hardships are too great to be resolved. Or we think that deliverance has to come in the form of removing the pain and suffering rather than seeing that deliverance could be given the resources of mind and of heart and of courage and of spirit to be able to more effectively and courageously endure the hardships that we're facing. We don't see that government can actually make a difference in our lives 
and bring about these types of ways of saving us. But I think at times like this, we really would like to see our government do something. But does it require times like this? When the government seems to be the only source of power or re relief that we recognize how important it is? Have we ramped up our prayers right now because of the emergency that we're in, our prayers for the governments of the world? Why haven't we been praying for our governments prior to this? Maybe, who knows? I, we, can't, we don't know all things. But perhaps if the people of God had been praying more faithfully for the, the, the governments of our nations, maybe there would have been a different response across the world to COVID-19. Who knows? Who knows? Third, we don't often vigilantly pray for the widespread flourishing of prosperity and abundance through conditions provided by the government because I think that we naturally think in terms of being in scarcity. Do we really have a vision for the abundant flourishing a vision that would energize us to pray for that. Do we believe that it's possible? Do we believe that it's possible? Or do we believe that the world cannot support all the people that live in it? If we don't have a vision for what we believe is possible, we won't pray for it. And again, do we believe that our governments can establish these conditions that lead to widespread flourishing? And that that is something that we should also be praying for. We can easily think that widespread flourishing has nothing to do with the government and that the government just needs to get out of the way. But it seems like this text is not teaching that. It seems like the government has an instrumental role in a, providing for the conditions or creating the conditions through which nations and the people of the nations can flourish. Now, ultimately, we don't have this, this sort of obedience to Christ in these things that he calls us to in regard to our nation's leaders not because of these three things. But ultimately, it's because we don't have the same vision that this psalmist in the scripture calls us to. We don't have renewed minds in how we think about the rulers of our nations. As Rosaria Butterfield, author of The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which we studied last year in our hospitality series, she, she stated this in a recent blog post. When we feast on CNN instead of scripture to ease the existential dread that captures our souls, we become useless. And biblically, the idea of useless is that we're, we're not in a position to fulfill the purposes of God and the works that he has called us to do. So we ultimately don't pray these things and orient ourselves to our leaders because we don't have a vision for a world in which Jesus is actually the ruler. Remember, there are two visions of this psalmist. A vision for what the nations could be now under righteous leaders, but ultimately 
a vision for the world and all of the nations of the world and all of the peoples of the world under the rule of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was on this earth, he said, the kingdom of God has come. And that is exactly what he meant. And as Colossians states, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the ruler. He is the protector. He is the provider for the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And we saw earlier in that passage in Colossians that he is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and that all of these rulers and nations of the world have been created by him and through him and for him. So that he is exalted, he is preeminent above all the rulers of the earth. And he sits at the right hand of God with the earth and its rulers at his feet. And this is, this is Jesus' position now. Not just in the future, but now. And he, he has promised to work to have the kingdom un, of God unfold in this world through his people. It's helpful for us to capture this vision by thinking of a few of the gospel passages that talked about how Jesus manifested what this psalmist is praying for. Remember that Jesus cured incurable diseases like leprosy and blindness. Imagine if there was a man going around the world in these most desperate of nations and curing people of COVID-19 as they lay dying in bed. Could you imagine the worldwide news surrounding that? Remember that Jesus fed and healed the poor and the sick and brought justice to Zacchaeus, who was an oppressive tax collector. So he ended Zacchaeus' oppression and he renewed, regenerated Zacchaeus to be a good and righteous man. Remember that Jesus showed us his abundant resources by feeding thousands of people multiple times with only a few scraps of food available to him to start with. Can you imagine in, in places that are desperate right now for food? We see, we see our shelves empty at grocery stores because of hoarding, but there are people going without around the world because of this. There are people going without around the world at all times. Can you imagine a man coming through and providing everything that people need. And remember in the first miracle recorded by the Gospel of John, Jesus produced hundreds of gallons of the best wine that the world has ever tasted when he was a wedding guest in, at that wedding in Cana as a demonstration of his ability to provide abundantly to bring flourishing to all people. If we don't have a vision for Jesus' rule for now and in the future, we won't have the optimism and the hope or the desire to pray for our leaders now who are under Jesus' Jesus's rule 
or for Jesus' eventual rule. We need compassion for our weaknesses. And Jesus provides that. We need deliverance from oppression. And Jesus provides that. We need a widespread prosperity for all peoples. And Jesus provides that. And we need governments to play the role that they've been ordained to do in order for us to experience these things at any degree on this, on this nation. And we'll see and experience Jesus indeed ruling in that way when he comes. Jesus demonstrated that he was indeed and is the righteous ruler. He has done and continues to do these things. And under his leadership, we can have the hope and encourage to endure these times and to pray that his power and his mercy would be seen and that he would guide and strengthen and make wise our own leaders so that he could bring peace and prosperity to our nation and the world. And we, are also, see, we also see that this motivates us to pray that Jesus would come and come quickly as the concluding passages in the Bible state. Jesus come, Jesus come. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this vision of, of the rulers of nations that can lead in such a way that protects the vulnerable and that provides for the flourishing and the prosperity of all peoples. God, we pray for our nation's leaders at this time. We pray, God, that you would indeed give them wisdom to govern the affairs needed to bring the COVID-19 epidemic uh, to an end. We see a long battle ahead for that, God, but we pray that you would give them the wisdom to do it. God, we pray that you would work in our nation's leaders around the world to make priority to meet the needs of those who are vulnerable, of those who are poor, of those who are weak, and who are in need of compassion. And God, we pray that you would strengthen and mobilize us as a church to have this vision that this psalmist provides, that we could see the hope and the promise of Christ and trust in the, in the power of Christ to work even now in these most desperate of times. Help us to pray, Lord God, for our, our, our leaders. Help us, God, to set our hope on the ultimate leader to come, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to meet the needs as they are presented to us, as you have instructed in Scripture. Strengthen us, God, against fear. Strengthen us against hopelessness. Strengthen us against anger, so that we are able to faithfully follow in the instructions that you've given to us, trusting that you are indeed leading and caring for us all along the way. In your son's name we pray. Amen.